All right, well, let's get started. Uh, we are on page 99 of your workbook, uh, picking up uh, where we last left off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we last... We last looked at uh, when a government is unwilling to recognize Christ and passes unjust laws, that that government is still under God and we render submission to it so long as we do not personally compromise our faith. That was the last point that we looked at, That really just that section um, and so we're going to pick up with, uh, oh, and we, and we looked at the two spheres of authority or what's historically been uh, referred to as the two kingdoms, uh, which is the church and the state, the kingdom of power and the kingdom of glory, as our forefathers uh, referred to it. Um, and so... You may hear people today talk about two-kingdom theology, and that is almost always in reference to what's coming out of Westminster Seminary in California, out in Escondido, California, uh, with what's called, quote-unquote, reformed two-kingdom, or as most people recognize it and refer to it as radical two-kingdom because that is a radical separation of the two kingdoms, and the two are not to have any kind of interplay with each other. Um, David Van Drunen is probably the most well-known proponent of that position, but it is slowly becoming a dominant position within Reformed churches. Uh, it seems to be overtaking uh, Kuiper's influence into Reformed churches. So he would see no merging between the two at all? Yeah. So Complete separation. So he would say he would say that there is nothing wrong for the government to permit uh, same-sex marriage because the government is purely secular and has no responsibility in in upholding the law of God. So they would say that they are under Christ as individuals, but not as the entity, not as the magistrate itself. They would say the magistrate is not under Christ, but the individuals within the magistrate are. Um, so that's what's usually referred to as two kingdoms. But we, historically, are two kingdoms, as we saw last time. The kingdom of power and the kingdom of glory, the kingdom of the state, the kingdom of the church, uh, the kingdom of the sword, and the kingdom of the keys. Um, and we saw that there is an interplay between the two, that the church is to proclaim the truth of God to the state and to pray for the state. 
calling them to repentance, calling them to faithfulness according to the precepts of the Word of God. And the state is to act as nursing fathers and mothers to the church, supporting them, promoting, protecting, and providing for the church. Um, and there was mention there was mention last time about tax dollars going towards the church. And, and I, I said that's not actually a bad thing. And that's because we see in Scripture... Uh, if you if you recall um, when Cyrus permitted the Jews to go back to Israel after the captivity, he actually gives of the funds of the state to the Jews to go and build their temple and restore Jerusalem. So we see there is biblical precedent. For a, a repentant nation, a repentant government, which recognizes the true God and the true religion to then use monetary funds to support the true religion. Uh, we have that biblical precedent. Um, and, and historically, um, part of the tax dollars would go towards the established church. So during the covenanted reformation of the 17th century, British tax dollars went to go towards uh, Presbyterian churches and, and helped pay salaries of ministers of Presbyterian churches because it was a covenanted land with a covenanted religion and the, the magistrate has an obligation to support the, the true church. Um, and that is part of being a nursing father or a nursing mother unto the church. Yeah. The, the, uh, on paper, that's good. In reality, the church is eventually, state I've, as historically, eventually believe they own the church and therefore has control over it. Yeah. And that's, that's where the reformers ran into trouble with the king, who's declared himself as head of the church because the state is sponsoring the church, therefore they own it. Um, and the same thing happened in, in uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, there's, there's many bad examples where that's gone off the rails as well. Yeah. So it's, it, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not disagreeing as long as the state is Toward the and and that's that's why you know when we're talking about what we're what we're talking about here is the establishment principle, and when we're talking about the establishment principle, it it it, it, it operates on the necessity of a godly magistrate, um, and we have to remember that what we're talking about here. Is principle, um, and what's happened in the past—the abuses, the perversions, the corruptions of uh, national established state churches, and, and the overbearance of magistrates in regards to those established churches. 
that does not negate principle. When we're talking about principle, we're talking about biblical mandates for what ought to be. And so that's what we're looking at here is, is the biblical mandate for what ought to be. This is what should happen. Now, this is not what is happening, even within those countries that have state churches. Uh, this is not what is happening. And so we have to distinguish what ought to be and what is and not let what is drive what we're doing and what we're promoting, what we're teaching and preaching and advocating for. What is isn't what we promote. What ought to be is what we promote. And the only way we get to what ought to be is through sincere heart change of individual people. And that's what differentiates between us and the theonomists. The theonomists have this notion that society will change so long as laws are put in place which uphold the law of God. And that's wrong because you're, what you're doing is you're trying to impose upon wicked people righteousness. Instead, what we should be advocating for and what Scripture teaches is the conversion of people, the true repentance of the heart, and the turning towards God, and that leading towards now a godly magistrate. Because if you have the overwhelming majority of the people within the land as true, confessing, reformed Christians, then they are going to be putting into office true, confessing, reformed Christians. And those true, confessing, reformed Christians will be doing these principles of what ought to be done. So it all, the, basically the difference is we don't seek change through legislation. We seek change through the spreading of the gospel. And that's the difference between establishmentarianism, historic two-kingdom theology, and theonomy. Um, and then we also see that the state uh, has the duty uh, to rule, to make laws, and to secure a quiet life for citizens in the church. And they are to rule according to the precepts of the Lord. Uh, we see that as the principle uh, throughout Scripture, that, that it is the moral law of God that they are to uphold. I mean, Van Drunen would say, yeah, the only way we see change in people is through the preaching of the gospel. But he would say, we don't need to see any kind of governmental change, societal change, in order to be able to live as we're supposed to. Um, and he would say that the, the magistrate has no duty to change. As an aside, his brother is an instructor in computer science at Wheaton. 
and has been up here several times. Hmm. I didn't used know to, that. Used to attend here once in a while. Just as an aside. All right, so that's where we were last time. I know we just spent 12 minutes on an introduction. I'm sorry. Um, but I think it was helpful to give an overview of where we were because those, princi- <clears throat> those principles, those principles are what's going to drive where we're going next. And that is the duties of the Christian citizen. If you don't have those principles, then we don't have any guidance in how we are to live as Christians in this land. Um, And so what we're doing is we're taking what ought to be and having it shape what is according to us, not what is according to the magistrate at the time. So we're seeking to conform our individual lives and the life of the church after the pattern of what ought to be laid out in Scripture. All right, so the first thing, the first duty that we see is that the Christian citizen is to pray for those who are in authority. Um, Brian, can you read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2? I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So, for whom are we to... Are we commanded to pray? Kings and all that are authority. For kings and for all that are in authority. You know, this, is, this is part of one of the duties required of you in the fifth commandment. As an inferior, what are the duties uh, of inferiors to superiors? Well, one of your duties is to pray for superiors. Pray for those who are over you. Um, you know, this is, a, this is part of the fifth commandment. And so we have in our prayer list every week, now we may not audibly pray for our magistrates every week, but we ha- uh, in the worship service, but we do have in our prayer list and I pray that you are uh, using that prayer list throughout the week, praying more in detail for those things. Every week, we have in our prayer list praying for our magistrates, for our federal, state, and local magistrates. Uh, and that's because we are commanded to do this. We are commanded to pray for them that they would rule in an honorable way according to the precepts of God so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Uh, and, And what is it that we should expect as the result of our prayers for our rulers? That we would lead a 
Yeah, that God would answer our prayers, that we would be able to lead the, God, the, the quiet and peaceable life. You know, we, we are a people who believes that God answers prayers. We don't just pray to hear ourselves talk, or I hope you don't. Otherwise, you're, you're violating the third commandment. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. If you're not praying, trusting that the Lord will answer those prayers. You know, that is, we are a praying people. And we believe that God is a God who answers our prayers. And so when we pray for our, uh, for the kings and for all those who are in authority, when we pray for magistrates, we trust that the Lord will hear our prayers and he will answer them according to his will. And that we will be able to lead a uh, quiet and peaceable life. Uh, now, there are instances where God, according to his own divine will, chooses not to cause the magistrates to allow a quiet and peaceable life for his people. Uh, we think of our brothers and sisters in China. You know, they have to worship underground. They can't be public about uh, being a church because the government will come in, shut down the church, arrest all the members, uh, and either execute them or put them into work camps. But they're still praying for their magistrates. I have a really good friend who is a pastor over there in the RP Church. And he said, I, I talked to him at Synod. Uh, he, was, he was able to come to Synod this past summer. And, and I talked with him, and he, we were talking about the government and the interference. And I asked, you know, well, what do you do uh, to, to try to not bring attention to yourself? And he said, well, we just meet. We don't publicize it. And then we pray for the, govern the government. We pray for those who are in authority that they would not come after us. And so like, even those who are in persecuted lands, they're still praying for their magistrates. Um, and if they're, if they're able to do that, knowing that that's the same magistrate that could arrest them and even kill them, how much more so should we, as those who are beneficiaries of such great freedom here, be praying that the magistrate would do so even more? Um, we should be praying for kings and for all those in authority. We should also be giving thanks that our government isn't rounding us up and throwing us in prison camps. Uh, so this is, this is one of the duties of being a Christian citizen, that we are to pray for those who are in authority over us. Um, we need to be praying for their repentance we need to be praying that the Lord would put godly people in these offices. Uh, we need to be a praying people. 
Next, he must endeavor to have his nation recognize its supreme loyalty to Christ. In a nation with a constitutional government, the Constitution should recognize King Jesus in its official statements. Uh, Matt, can you read Psalm 72.11 and then Roman Revelation 15.4? So here we have an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture, both of which are speaking of nations, kings, bowing down before the Lord and worshiping Him. That's what's required of all nations. That the kings of the earth would bow down before Jehovah. That the nations would come and worship Him. And any nation that has been enlightened with the gospel has an obligation to codify that gospel in their governing documents. This is the great sin of the United States. And honestly, this is what makes the United States and its constitution such a novel thing. Nowhere else who has been enlightened with the gospel of Jesus Christ at their, uh, in their constitutional documents has uh, neglected a recognition of the sovereignty of God and the submission of of the nation to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go to every country who has been enlightened with the gospel on a national level, and you can see in their governing documents, a lot of them begin with a line very similar to, uh, in recognition of the sovereignty of the Lord and submission to Jesus Christ, and then they give their constitution. And if you look at the states when they were colonies in their charters, almost every one of them did that as well. And then even once we became a nation and we became states, each state had their own constitution and they did it as well. Almost every state in its founding had a recognition of the, of the blessing of the Lord, of the sovereignty of God, and submission to Jesus Christ. And a lot of them also in their constitution had established churches. Now some of them were, were sinful churches that should not have been established, like Maryland, which was established as a Catholic colony, Maryland, Maryland. And the established church of Maryland was the Catholic Church. 
But there were godly examples as well, like Massachusetts. The established church of Massachusetts was Presbyterian. Yeah. We, the people of the state of Illinois, grateful to Almighty God for the civil, political, and religious liberty which He has permitted us to enjoy, and seeking His blessing upon our endeavors in order to provide for the health, safety, and welfare of the people, maintain a, a representative and orderly government. So it um, acknowledges the uh, grateful to the Almighty God uh, for his sympathy. So that, that's the opening line. For example. Yeah. And then, and then the, uh, there are other state constitutions that are even more explicit that actually mention Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt? Our founders were students of the Enlightenment. Absolutely. And that's what I was going to get at. You know, when we're talking about the establishment principle, we also must look at the establishment principle and the time in which uh, it began to be eroded. And that was during the Enlightenment. It was during the Enlightenment that voluntarism began to be the, mo- the, the predominant position among intellectuals. Um, and... It began to take hold in Europe, but Europe had enough of a foundation that it didn't cancel out, at least initially, uh, the work that the reformers had fought and died for. Over time, it eventually did, even though constitutional documents in Europe still are very much establishmentarian or, or even, you know, if not establishmentarian, they're Erastian or they're, um, they're papist in nature. But very few uh, of the European nations would have enlightenment principles enshrined within their constitutions. But yet the American constitution is almost undeniably a product of the Enlightenment. Is there any reference to God in the Constitution? (laughs) There's only one instance that could be argued that there is a reference to God in the Constitution, and that's the words Anno Domine. Yeah, in the year of our Lord. That's the only reference that could be manipulated to say that our Constitution recognizes God. There's a gentleman who's written extensively on the Christian founding of this country. His name escapes me right now. I have heard him. I've gone to a meeting where he was there, made the presentation, and that's the argument he makes is that, you know, that, that, that says we're a Christian nation. And that's his contention that we're founded upon Christian principles. And it's, um, 
as I said, you squeeze it hard enough, and you got, you know, you get something out of it. But yeah. Um, it's not. It's not there. The DS who wrote the Constitution have no problem with the words "anno domine." The Universalists who signed the Constitution had no problem with the words "anno domine." So they are not. Anno Domine is not an explicit Christian reference because even those heretics who wrote and signed the Constitution had no problem with it. Now, they would have had a problem with recognizing the sovereignty of Almighty God and the uh, supremacy of Christ Jesus over this nation. They would have had a major problem with that because the deists deny the sovereignty of God and the universalists deny the supremacy of Christ Jesus. Um, so our Constitution can in no way be a, uh, called a Christian document. Um, Okay, we're going we're gonna to get down to what I was about to drive into. We're going to get to that here in just a second. So next, he must never engage in any civil action that would compromise his first loyalty to Christ. And our testimony in chapter 23, paragraph 17 says, the Christian must relinquish every right or privilege of citizenship that involves him in silence about or denial of the supreme authority of Christ Jesus. This is showing verses, but it doesn't tell me where those verses are coming from. Um, so... Obviously, an example would be, you know, you have the right to, to give tribute uh, to, the, to the government, but you must do so saying, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Well, you must not obey that. But what if... You know, you have a, a right, a privilege, a duty of your citizenship to serve on jury duty if you're summoned by the court, right? But the laws of the land of the state of Illinois, let's say it's a it's a murder case because you know we finally have a godly district attorney who's willing to prosecute the murder of uh, prosecute the murder of the unborn and so we have our first case coming up of a woman standing trial for murder for the for killing her unborn child we have a godly district attorney who's willing to prosecute it but the state of Illinois set, still says on their laws that abortion is not murder you're selected for the jury. Can you 
uphold that law in your jury duty and and say this woman is not guilty of murder. No, you cannot because it, it denies the authority of Jesus Christ in these matters. Because he says it's murder. So you must either go against what the law says and, and be held liable in those terms, or you must give up that duty, that privilege of serving on, jur- on jury. Um, because you cannot do that while also upholding the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, let's talk about rights. You have the right, according to the state of Illinois, to go and kill your un- unborn child. But you must give up that right because exercising it would deny the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It would deny his law. So anytime there is, there is a reason uh, or, or a, a, anytime there is something having to do with your Christian citizenship that would cause you to compromise your faith, you must not do it. Because the magistrate isn't supreme over you. Jesus Christ is supreme over you. And you must follow God rather than men. Okay, so that's a really interesting topic. Um, so let's say that, you know, you're a Christian and you were summoned you know, for jury duty and then you have to testify or, or just, I guess, like come up with a unanimous decision as a jury so how would you do that? Like, I mean, can you decline service? Can you decline your opinion? Yeah, so you can, uh, during jury selection, you're summoned for jury duty. During jury selection, you can ask for a recusal from the judge on religious grounds. Or you can... You can serve on the jury and seek in that way to uphold the law of God within the courts. Um, Let's say they're they're prosecuting an unjust law. You know, we're in another lockdown and churches are forbidden from uh, gathering together for worship, but we do. And the police come in and they arrest me and Bob. And now we're put on trial for violating the law of the state, but you get selected for jury duty, you can sit on that jury and do what's called jury nullification. It's where you view what's being prosecuted as an unjust law, even though we are guilty of it, and you know we are, but it's an unjust law, and so you vote not guilty in order to... uh, in order to cause either a mistrial, a hung jury, or even to persuade other people to vote not guilty as well due to the unjust nature of the law. Okay, that's interesting. Because I was summoned for jury duty and I couldn't, and said that it was an obligation. So they gave me like two days of work or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I think up to two days 
support, something like that. And um, I didn't see any option for me to decline or to. No, you you would you would either. Usually, there's like a contact method on jury summons, mm -hmm. or you would have to show up for jury duty and there before the judge and the two attorneys, you would have to give your reasons for why you cannot serve on jury duty because of your religious uh, convictions. I don't think you can just deny jury duty outright, but you can deny a specific case, and I think that's yeah. what. I don't think a lawyer would probably choose you for that case anyway, because, but. Yeah, uh, it's a It was a civil case involving a traffic accident. The laws were clear, and I don't think they in any way violated scripture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so. Now, we're, we're going to get to where. There is a there is a case to be made where serving on a jury is in itself unlawful. Uh, we're going to get there in just a second, but the act of serving on the jury is not unlawful and can be used for the furtherance of of good within the civil realm, such as jury nullification. Um. But you cannot be forced by the magistrate to do anything that is contrary to the Christian faith or, or, or would cause you to compromise your faith. Uh, the next duty that's listed here, and this is from our testimony in chapter 23, paragraph 15, is having to do with the duty to vote. The Christian ought to be involved in the selection of and to vote for civil rulers who fear God, love truth and justice, hate evil, and are publicly uh, committed to scriptural principles of government. Uh, I don't have I don't have the reference with me right now, so I'm here it is. Uh, 2 Samuel 23, 3 gives us the requirement for those who are to rule over men. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake, spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. That is the requirement for who Christians are permitted to vote for. That's the baseline requirement. If that's not there, it doesn't matter anything else. You can't vote for them. But then there are other things that are required as well. But he must rule in the fear of God. Does Mitt, would Mitt Romney rule in the fear of God? Did Barack Obama rule in the fear of God? Did Donald J. Trump 
role in the fear of God? Is Joe Biden ruling in the fear of God? Did any of them in their uh, campaigns make it a point to say, I will rule in the fear of God? A few of the current candidates, like the former governor of Indiana, we'll we'll talk about that. Um, The black candidate from North Carolina, uh, Tim Scott. Tim Scott, thank you. Also, not least, it makes some acknowledgement. Yeah, he's not nods in that direction. But you know, and it's interesting to see what type of response they get from the press and the general public on those things. I don't hear DeSantis doing much of that. Um, Yeah. So you have some guys who will pay lip service to this, and a lot of people will say, "Well, I'm a Christian, and that's what guides me." in how I'm going to rule. Uh, it's very vague. It's very general. And then they get in office and they show you they're probably not a Christian and they're definitely not allowing the law of God to guide how they rule. Um, but this is the baseline for a ruler. And if, if a man is not committed to this, a Christian is not permitted to vote for him. End of the day. And to do so is sin. And that might ruffle some feathers with people here. It may ruffle some feathers with people in our denomination, even pastors. But the law of the Lord is clear. That this is how one who rules must rule. And that's in the fear of God. Hey, Shani. Hey, Amanda. Now, like I said, that's the baseline. But built on top of that is that they must uphold the law of God in how they rule. Romans 13 says that they are to be ministers of God, executing wrath upon evildoers and rewarding those who do good. The only way they can do that is if they know good and evil. Those are moral categories. And good and evil, those moral categories, can only be ascertained through an understanding of the moral law of God. And so a magistrate must uphold the moral law of God. And if a candidate is not willing to say, I'm going to rule according to the moral law of God, then a Christian ought not vote for them. Because they are going to rule according to a law that is contrary to the law of God. If they're not ruling according to the law of God, they're ruling according to a law that is contrary to the law of God. And a Christian ought not vote for them. And to do so is sin. And like I said, this may ruffle some feathers, but this means any person who voted for Mitt Romney for 
Barack Obama, for Donald Trump, for Joe Biden, for Ron Paul, for Rand Paul, and myself is included in these, or for any other candidate who has not made it public that they will rule according to these principles, anyone who has voted for these people, that was sinful and you need to repent. And that's a hard thing, to, that's a hard pill to swallow. And that also means that next year, come November, the first Tuesday after the first Saturday of the month of November, when we go to the ballot box, if you choose to go to the ballot box, if you fill in that bubble for a candidate who has not come out and said, I will rule according to these principles, then you're going into that ballot box and you're committing sin. And you need to be mindful of that. Because there are Christian principles there are biblical principles that guide how a Christian is to vote. And you see back there on the table, and on the book table, there's a booklet called Christ-Centered Voting. And before you ever fill out a ballot, I'd recommend you read that book. It's not for you to make sure that someone is going to keep their word. It's up to them. You have a responsibility in ensuring that who you are supporting, who, are you, who you are putting into office, has publicly committed themselves to doing these things. But once they are in office... If they prove themselves to be a hypocrite, the sin is not on you, it's on them. And that is at all levels, right? Like for all, all levels. Gotcha. Because every form of government must be ruled according to the precepts of God. Um, but it goes a step further. We live in a, in a nation where in order to hold a public office in this nation, you must swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Is the Constitution of the United States a document which recognizes the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Is the Constitution of the United States a document that requires the support of sin? Yes. The Constitution itself is a sinful document. Why? Let's not look at the Bill of Rights or any of the amendments. Let's just look at the body of the regular Constitution first. It endorsed slavery. Man-stealing. So now we get to the Bill of Rights in the First Amendment. And then codified in the Bill of Rights is freedom, from, freedom, freedom of religion and the denial of the establishment principle. 
It is forbidden in our country for a magistrate to establish a church on a national level. That is a principle of God. The establishment principle is a principle of God. And to deny that is to, not, is to deny a principle of God. And what is, it, what is it if you deny a principle of God? It's a sin. And then the freedom of religion, allowing the free exercise of all of these false religions... Is that what magistrates are called to do? Or are godly magistrates not called in Scripture to tear down the idols and to cast out the heathen from the land? That's what a godly magistrate does. That's what a, that's what a magistrate who has been enlightened with the gospel does. And that's what's required of our magistrates too here in this land. We in the United States have a responsibility to drive out the heathen as well and to stop false religions from being practiced here. And so the Constitution itself is a sinful document. Now hear this. RP Testimony 23, paragraph 16. It is sinful for a Christian to take an oath which compromises his supreme allegiance to Jesus Christ. It is also sinful to vote for officials who are required to take an oath which a Christian himself could not take in good conscience. Voting involves the voter in responsibility for any act required of the official as a condition for holding his office. It's required to hold office in this nation for you to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, which is a sinful document. Therefore, it is required of anyone who holds office in this nation to sin. And so you as a voter are responsible for the actions of those, uh, uh, the, the necessary actions of those who you place into office. So you voting for someone to hold a political office is you voting for them to take that sinful oath. Therefore, you're voting for them to sin and you're guilty of that sin as well. And this is why historically we in the Reformed Presbyterian Church have been political dissenters. We don't vote in uh, the election of officials because of the sinful nature of of the Constitution. Now, there is, there is a document that was approved by our Senate and approved by Congress as a lawful uh, exception, and that's what's called the Explanatory Declaration. And it's, it, it is someone who's taking an oath of office they take this explanatory declaration along with it to explain how they are going to hold this office. It says, in taking this oath, I make no mental reservation. I am a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, and I declare that I owe a supreme allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in making that declaration, I take the same God as my witness invoking his assistance to help me to render due obedience 
to my country in all temporal matters. And I do further declare that I do not know any manner in which I intend actual disobedience to any command of my country now known to me. So that's the explanatory declaration. The problem with it is that it, it says a whole lot of nothing. It doesn't call out the sins of the Constitution. It doesn't declare that you're not going to uphold those sinful parts of the Constitution. In fact, it says, I don't know of any matter in which I will disobey my oath of office. So it, that, was, that was passed in 1939. And it was actually approved by Congress for use in official oaths of office. In 1959, Senate proposed a change to it, which did not pass. Therefore, it was not approved by Congress, obviously. But it actually fixes the issue. It says, I cannot conscientiously take the oath to the Constitution of the United States without an explanation, because I believe the Bible teaches that all men owe their first allegiance to Jesus Christ and that all nations should acknowledge his authority and law. I am willing to take the oath with this explanation. My taking this oath is not to be interpreted as meaning that I approve the failure of this constitution to acknowledge the authority and law of Jesus Christ, nor whom or, uh, through whom are bestowed the blessings of Almighty God is to be interpreted as meaning that my purpose is to be true, a true and loyal citizen of this country and in every way consistent with my maintaining my first allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a better explanatory declaration. It could go a bit further, but that's a lot better. And so... Usually, when you're getting back to the jury duty question issue, when you're, when you're sworn in as a juror, you swear to uphold the law as contained within the Constitution. Which means you're swearing to also uphold the unlawful ones, the unjust ones, the sinful ones. And that's where these explanatory declarations are necessary. I cannot vote for a man, even if he has all of the other qualifications that's required of him to hold an office in this nation, if he will not take an explanatory declaration such as this, I cannot vote for him. Because that would be voting for a man to take a sinful oath. Because he's, he's, a, he's swearing an oath to uphold sin within the Constitution. Um, now, you're not, you're not going to hear this position as the widespread position in the RPCNA now. Even though it's still encoded within our testimony and our history is, is riddled with it, we, we officially lost our position of political dissent decades ago. Um, I'm not even sure if establishmentarianism is the predominant position within our denomination now even though it's still enshrined within our governing documents. Um, you'll even see RP ministers like you saw years ago vote for wicked men like Mitt Romney, who's a Mormon and could in no way rule in the fear of God because he doesn't even know God. Um, 
But we need to return to these principles. And as long as we are not upholding these principles that are laid out in the Word of God and holding men accountable to the Word of God and what's required of them, then we will continue to be under the judgment of God's wrath. And part of the judgment of God's wrath we see in Scripture is giving them wicked rulers. We as a people, we need to repent. We as a church, we need to repent. We as a denomination, we need to repent. We as a nation, we need to repent. And until we do that, the Lord will keep judging us by giving us wicked rulers. And no matter how much you try to vote for the lesser of two evils, you're still going to get a wicked man in office. So, that is, those are the duties of uh, Christians within uh, society. And uh, we can talk about these things further. We are well past our time. We're actually past our time to actually start the service. So we're going to stop there. If you have questions, let's talk about it during lunch. Uh, Bob, can I get you to close us in prayer? leaders, we do care for its leadership. And Lord, we do pray that there would be men and women raised up who would serve and follow Jesus Christ. Who would make that as a public declaration. But Lord, uh, Lord, as we come to worship, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your house this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you give to us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.